Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. We are continuing this week in the bulk of this week's episode with the discussions, conversations, talks Bible that we've had on uh, Wednesday night Bible studies here at All Saints Presbyterian Church, where we've been considering the theme of pursuing maturity in Christ. I'm not going to say anything else about that, because if you've been listening to this for any, uh, num- any length of time, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. If this is the first podcast uh, you've tuned into from All Saints, or the first one in a while, then, well, welcome, or welcome back. And um, if you uh, have no idea what I'm talking about, which you won't, um, then either just listen on, or go back and listen to one of the previous few episodes in this series of episodes, and then you'll figure out pretty quickly uh, what it is that I'm talking about. But before we get into that, I just want to share with you something extra which um, has been, uh, well, it reflects a nagging concern that has been growing in my mind in the last few months, and actually in the last few years. And it has to do with this issue of pursuing maturity in Christ, because let me tell you, it is something which, if it's not diagnosed and dealt with, and in some cases repented of, it will certainly stop us from growing in maturity in Christ. So maybe if I describe the background that's led me to uh, this uh, conclusion, and then we can talk about the phenomenon itself, and uh, see what we should make of it. I've noticed in recent years a growing number of young people and young adults talking, often publicly, about the traumatic childhood they experienced or the trauma that they experienced during their upbringing. The age group that this seems to be confined to is, well, I would say now, in my experience at least, it's, uh, it's people in their 20s. I started to notice this a few years ago with older teenagers as well as young 20-somethings. But um, just thinking about the dates, and this has been something that I've been seeing for at least four or five years, if not longer. All those people who were teenagers would now be in their 20s. So that's the age group, the kind of demographic I'm thinking about, who would talk um, in uh, quite... Um, open terms, but never with much in the way of detail about the trauma of their upbringing or the traumatic character of their upbringing. I want to think about this for a little bit because it seems to me intriguing and potentially disturbing. Let me um, just get one caveat out of the way uh, up front. Um, Of course, it is true that some people do experience terrible trauma as young people. Some people experience violent abuse or sexual abuse or really terrible neglect and abandonment um, by their parents or family members or by other adults. Those circumstances, of course, are traumatic. They do constitute trauma of a terrible kind. And I'm not talking about those kinds of situations. I'm not uh, wanting to address that. That seems to me an appropriate description of a childhood like that, a childhood in which um, somebody has been physically abused or sexually abused or or, uh, neglected and abandoned by their parents, as tragically some have, and some children, some young people have been. Uh, Such an experience is traumatic. I think it warrants that label. But as it happens, I know enough about some of the young adults who've used this label of themselves to know that unless there's some serious criminal activity which has not been prosecuted, uh, they haven't experienced trauma of that kind. And this has got me to thinking about what's happening with the use of this label. Now, I think there's a number of things going on at once. Um, Trauma, historically, 
has meant serious injury, normally bodily injury. Um, medics describe um, trauma as something, you know, sort of serious damage to a, a limb or internal trauma, serious damage to internal uh, a part of the body. It might be quite localized um, in, a, in uh, extent physically, but nonetheless, it's a serious um, it's it's something which has damaged the body. Now, I guess you um, you could say under the a medic might say that well, a bruise is a form of trauma. But we all recognise that the term historically, both um, uh, medically and actually in other fields as well, um, arises from uh, a description of serious damage that somebody has experienced. And what's happened in recent years, perhaps in the last couple of decades or so is that the term has been transferred metaphorically from the physical to emotional aspects of a person's life. So people talk now about emotional trauma. And then what's happened is that a further step has taken place, whereby um, the degree of seriousness of the experience that warrants the label trauma has diminished now, this is a phenomenon which has been uh, documented elsewhere. This is not just me saying this. I think what I, what's happening is I'm observing uh, pastorally and empirically some of the fruits of this. But this is the kind of thing which has uh, been talked about in literature about microaggressions, uh, about uh, the culture of victimhood. Um, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, document some of this. Basically, what's happened is it's a kind of uh, grade inflation, but applied to the negative experience of um, hardship or difficulty or something which is a painful experience, which in the past might have been called, you know, that was a painful experience, that was, that was difficult, uh, that was unpleasant, and now is called trauma. And what's happened in effect, therefore, is that the description of the seriousness of something normally unspecified in a young person's background has been amplified to give the impression that it was really, really, well, traumatic. Now, I don't mean to minimise at this point even um, what we might call the, the normal experiences of growing up, but it's important just to keep a sense of perspective, just in terms of uh, trying to relate what we're seeing in the world around us to historical uh, norms and get some sense of scale so we can understand how contemporary experiences uh, compare to historical experiences. Um, we might think of the, the death of a relative as uh, a painful experience, and obviously it is. Anybody who's lost a, a father or a mother or a sibling or any other relative uh, knows that that's a terribly, terribly painful experience. But it's important also to recognise that that's part of the normal experience of life. Uh, people have been dying for as long as they've been living. And indeed, in previous generations, uh, young people and old people were far more exposed to the terrible and painful realities of, let's say, death and bereavement than we are now. Uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, it would have been extremely common, you know, well above 50% of people would have uh, seen uh, a dead body, normally more than one, normally of a relative who died in their house by the time they themselves were 10 or 15 years old. Uh, I've never seen a dead body. I'm 40-something. Uh, that's a measure of the degree to which 
the culture that we live in is actually protected from some of the harsh realities of life that have always been a part of human experience. What I want to question is not the fact that we uh, experience difficult things and that life is sometimes painful. What I want to question is what's going on when somebody starts using the language of trauma, which historically has described something far more serious than that, to describe these more routine, though painful, experiences. What's actually happening, it seems to me, is, an, is a couple of different things. Um, one, I've hinted at already, if you uh, look at the literature on uh, microaggressions, as they've come to be called, uh, what's happened in, in the uh, public square, and especially in academic contexts, but also now in, in other social contexts, in government contexts, in commercial contexts, corporate, corporate world, and so on, is that um, the smallest of slights, even unintended um, uh, slights, thing, words that weren't intended as a criticism, uh, are now being described as aggressions, albeit microaggressions, even violence. Uh, the language of violence is now routinely being applied, especially in, uh, among the student age group at universities. I think this is where it's restricted to the kind of 20-something age group. Uh, the language of violence is being applied to speech now routinely. Anything which, any kind of speech which is felt to be offensive or painful to, to confront or, or which disagrees with the listener's own perspective is a form of violence in many contexts. And so you've got this um, uh, cultural move towards interpreting uh, normal experiences, albeit sometimes unpleasant ones, as really, really, really very serious acts of violence and, uh, in this case, traumatic experiences. And so it raises the question, what's behind that? Well, let me tell you what's behind that. What's behind that is something which we've talked about before uh, on this podcast, uh, or if not on this podcast, we've yes, we have talked about it on this podcast, and we've certainly talked about it on uh, the devotions on this the channel. If you're watching this on YouTube, um, previous um, devotions uh, go back a year or two. The rise of what is now known as the critical social justice movement. In the background to this talk about the trauma of our experiences, uh, that I'm telling you, I'm hearing increasingly among young, young adults. Uh, is the rise of the critical social justice movement. Now, let me explain how it works. Um, without going into all the ins and outs and the historical background of critical social justice ideology or critical theory, as it's sometimes called, where it ends up is with a, a set of convictions, including the view that the worth of a person's words and the perspective they bring to a particular conversation depends on the degree to which they can categorize themselves as part of an op oppressed minority or an oppressed group. And we've talked about this if you go back and listen to some of the stuff that I've said or go and read some um, other critical material about um, uh, the critical social justice movement. You'll, you'll find that um, routinely people who are uh, held to be members of oppressor groups, so white people, men, uh, adults, um, uh, cisgendered, so-called, that is to say, not transgendered, and non-immigrants and so on, uh, are told in various contexts that they don't have anything that ought to be listened to, they don't have a contribution to make, they ought simply to be silent and to, to listen and hear the views of oppressed 
minorities and oppressed groups, which would be uh, black people, it would be women, it would be transgendered people, and so on and so forth. Now, you can see what's happening. The, the degree to which somebody is thought to have an opinion that's worth hearing within a critical theoretic mindset depends on the degree to which they can categorize themselves as oppressed. Now, what's happened then further is that people's moral standing has come to be associated and indeed defined by the group that they're a member of. So if you're a white male, you're guilty of all of the things that other white men may have done and have done in the past. Whereas if you're, let's say, a black woman, you're held to be a victim because of your membership of that group of all those crimes or sins committed against other members of that group in the past. So you can see what's starting to happen. Uh, your, the, the moral standing that you have, whether you're guilty or whether you're innocent within a social context, is defined by your group membership. And this then seems to have permeated into people's appraisal of their own past experiences. Put it like this. In a culture where the worth of what you have to say and indeed, your moral worth as a person is correlated with your experience of oppression in the past. What can you do to increase your moral and social value? Well, the answer is very simple. You depict yourself as a victim. In the case, well, the cases that I've alluded to, you depict yourself as a victim of trauma. Seems to me that's what's going on here. In other words, to bring all these things together uh, among sometimes Christian people, but certainly people who wouldn't, I don't think, want to associate themselves with the most egregious excesses of the critical social justice movement. What I'm starting to hear is people describing themselves as victims of trauma, and I'm telling you where it's coming from ideologically, or where it seems to be coming from. Uh, and if you think there's a different reason, um, uh, a different source for this, then please let me know, because I'd be intrigued to hear it. But it seems to me the most plausible explanation for where it's coming from is this backdrop in the critical social justice movement where victims are the ones who are listened to. Victims are the ones who have a story to tell that ought to be heard. Victims are indeed the ones who um, in, have some kind of moral standing in the community. And therefore, there's this kind of incentive operating uh, among, within social worlds influenced by the critical social justice movement. There's an incentive for people to depict themselves as victims. Hence, what do people do? Well, I, this is not intended to be cynical, but let me tell you what I think is happening. You have somebody who may be 18, 20, 25, 28, 30, 35, who is living in a social world shaped by the critical social justice movement. And they perceive that people are valued according to the extent to which they can depict themselves as victims. And they look back at their own life and they see the normal array of childhood struggles, painful experiences, and so on and so forth. And they grasp at those as the basis for their claim that they have been traumatized. And they'll talk publicly about it, never as far as I can, well, at least not in my experience, or rarely specifying any of the details, but always in such a way, well, once you've said you're a victim of trauma, you've kind of Place yourself in a position where it's rude for somebody to ask, well, what exactly was it that traumatized you? Because, well, then, hey, you're questioning their own lived experience, something else you're not supposed to do. 
And the result is that we're in the, those cultural movements are encouraging people, especially young adults, it seems to me, to depict themselves uh, in this way. Now, why is that so damaging? Well, first, it's not true, or at least it, it's a distorted perspective on one's own experience. It doesn't help ever generally to depict yourself in a way that is at variance with the reality of your own experience or your own life. But then secondly, this particular misplaced depiction of oneself is particularly damaging because here's the key thing to the extent that you depict yourself as a victim you simultaneously cause yourself to feel that there's nothing that you can do about the situation think back to what trauma is trauma is something inflicted trauma is something that damages you somebody who's experienced physical trauma may lose temporarily or permanently the use of a limb or the proper functioning of the damaged internal organs. Somebody who's genuinely emotionally traumatized, think of people with post-traumatic stress disorder, the genuine emotional correlate of the sort of physical trauma that um, people experience in who take them to emergency rooms and so on. Post-traumatic stress disorder radically uh, impacts your ability to function in the world. It, it makes it impossible for you to live a normal life. And uh, Lord preserve the people who've placed themselves in situations where often it's been soldiers historically, placed themselves in those situations to defend others and have been aff afflicted in that way. That's what trauma is. Trauma is the thing that describes an experience where there's nothing you can do short of, well, perhaps the the long and painful labour of physical and emotional rehabilitation to get yourself back to some kind of properly functioning human being in society. Now, if we are going to start depicting ourselves as traumatised, that's what's going to happen to all of us. To the extent that we depict ourselves as victims of trauma, we will simultaneously be ingraining in our own minds this sense that there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do to learn to function properly in society. There's nothing I can learn to, that I can do to grow in patience or godliness or robustness. And then worse than that, we'll be placing ourselves in a position where we learn to interpret future events as traumatic. Because, hey, um, you think your childhood was traumatic? Well, let me tell you, adulthood is going to be the same. It'll probably be worse. As history goes on, as your life proceeds, you'll encounter more of the normal pains of life. And if we teach ourselves that those are trauma in general, rather than just very occasionally traumatic, mostly painful but tragically normal. If we teach ourselves that they're worse than they are, we are setting ourselves up for a situation in which we fail to live in a Christ-like and uh, robust and sustainable way, living faithfully as disciples of Christ in those experiences. Because, hey, we're victims. There's nothing we can do to shape our behaviour appropriately. That's where we're headed. If we don't resist this systematic overstatement of the normal painful processes of life as traumatic. Okay, enough on that subject. Um, there's probably a bunch of questions that may have raised. Uh, and if that's the case, please, as ever, don't hesitate to get in touch. It's always good to hear from people. And especially if you're here at All Saints, uh, give me a shout if um, this has prompted any questions for you personally. It'd be wonderful to talk with you. But for now, I think that's enough. And I hope you enjoy 
the rest of this podcast, which takes us back to last Wednesday, a couple of days ago, as and when, as of when I'm recording this, and the latest instalment in the Bible study series on pursuing maturity in Christ. God bless you. Bye for now. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for our fellowship in Christ, for all the goodness that you've showered upon us. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit by whom we're united with him and strengthened for lives of Christ-like service. And as we self-consciously reflect uh, this evening, as we've done in previous weeks, on uh, our distance from that goal and the resources that you've set before us to strive towards it, we ask that you'd help us, help us to be clear-headed and honest with each other and with ourselves and open and uh, to begin getting gritty and practical about the kinds of steps that we might helpfully make to growing purposefully towards maturity in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so uh, I'm planning to do more or less what I've done in, in uh, previous weeks. Uh, you've got on this handout, uh, you've got a growing summary, verbatim uh, description uh, well, an extract from what I shared with the gentleman at uh, the Men's Discipleship a few weeks ago. And what I'm doing is I'm condensing the stuff we have covered, just to put it in context. And then there is, a, this time, a really rather large section uh, in bold type, which goes over the page, uh, which I'm going to read uh, and just uh, not really make too many comments on. But we're going to be exploring the bold section in more detail today. And as you re- recall, my aim in, in these sessions has been to to, so to speak, expound the details of what I'm getting at in that two-page summary, to interrogate it in detail. And and especially at the beginning, there were some theological claims which needed exploring. Now what we're doing is we're getting to some practical statements about how the the insights that we've accumulated so far might helpfully be put to work in uh, day-to-day life. So in one sense... Um, it's expanded. There's more text to cover. And that's perhaps because, uh, I was thinking about why this is, I think it's because um, we're moving away from theological and biblical claims, which we're familiar with and can be summarized, and moving on to terrain, which frankly might be new to us, because it is so, it's orienting the biblical and theological material we've covered slightly differently. And you'll see what I mean by that. If that doesn't make sense to you, you'll see shortly. So let me read this, and then we'll jump in. The Christian faith is all about pursuing maturity in Christ. That is, Christ-likeness in every area of life. Christ himself is the perfect mature man, and he has bestowed his maturity on us as a gift by the Spirit. He calls us now to exhibit this gift in increasing measure and promises that we may expect to make significant progress as we seek to do so. Guys, you might want to grab uh, one of these handouts just here. Yeah, go right ahead. But we don't always experience this progress. Indeed, sometimes Christians seem to make little progress at all or even regress towards immaturity. Why might this be? We obviously can't just ignore the problem. Instead, while recognizing the sovereignty of God's grace, we must try to understand what we can do to grow in maturity and faithfulness. According to Scripture... The God-given progress by which a person should grow to maturity is childhood. Parents provide for their children the basic necessities of life. They understand how their children's capacities are developing as they grow, and they know how they ought to develop in the future. 
This process of growth toward maturity is facilitated by the imposition of structures designed to inculcate habits that shape the child's character, the foundation of maturity in Christ. Now, that's what we got to last week. And over the page, I'm, I'm going to be trying to drill into all our minds, mine included, this connection that I think is a biblical one between structure, habits, and character. Uh, is what you see in childhood. That's the central insight that I'm trying to draw on in these uh, conversations, in these discussions. Um, so what that means then is that we can then think, okay, how do we apply that to the problem that we've all noticed in ourselves from time to time that we don't seem to be perfectly Christ-like yet? What do we do? Well, within this framework, we can now re-articulate the problem of immaturity we described earlier. In effect... What we all suffer is a failure to grow up fully through the divinely ordained process of childhood. Various aspects of our lives are still stuck in the past, so that although we may be chronologically adults, significant traces of childishness remain. All of us have this problem to some degree. An adult is immature to the degree that he lacks the capacity for Christ-like self-government. Right, now this is worth thinking about this. This doesn't mean that all of us are intellectually, emotionally, spiritually stunted evenly. Uh, some teenage boys experience this very strange phenomenon of their, their hands and their feet growing to longer than their parents or their father's hands and feet while they're still five foot two. Yeah? You, you remember that time? I remember my, my feet became sort of size 12 when I was about... 12 years old, I'm still like this tall. It's like you feel like a clown, like tripping over these great big long shoes. Because uh, what's happened is you're out of proportion. Now, that wouldn't be very funny if that was you in your 20s. Or think of it the other way around you're six foot tall, but you've got size three feet. <laughs> that, in effect, what I'm suggesting is that all of us have, in various aspect, aspects of our character, we've got size three feet. You might be fully grown as a human being, but there'll be things about us that haven't matured as they should. And it'll be different for everybody. There may be some cultural trends. We've talked about some of those in other contexts, whereby a whole crowd of people from a particular place at a particular time are all immature in a certain way. I'm actually going to get onto that um, in the next few weeks. And I'll talk about technology and entertainment. I've talked about pornography before. These are rampant issues in our culture that need to be wrestled with particularly, but there'll be other things as well. This being the case, we can now articulate a fresh approach to addressing the problems of immaturity with which we began. If the problems arise from a failure to grow up, perhaps they can be tackled by replicating in adulthood some aspects of the processes that should operate during childhood in order to catch up in those areas where we have fallen behind. So, you, you know, you have the feet of a nine-year-old, but you're 25. Well, what we do is we go back to the age of nine and we replicate whatever processes your feet should have gone through so that they get to the normal length. I mean, obviously, that's a ludicrous thing. You can't do that with physical growth. But it seems to me Scripture suggests you can do it with our Christian growth. Now, we're not obviously... obviously we're, oh, sorry. We're obviously not talking about a simple return to childhood kind of nice when it move back in with mum and dad hey mum uh, you failed to make me a mature man 
So I've decided I'm going to move back in with you until you've done a better job. Notice I'm not, I'm not blaming the parents here. I'm blaming the children as is blaming ourselves. The reason you can't do that is because you've got to do other stuff. As adults, we have numerous responsibilities that cannot be relinquished. Managing our families, earning money, planning our lives. You've got jobs and homes and all this sort of thing. Moreover, we can't look to our parents to provide whatever structures we, we may need to facilitate our growth. What we've rather got to do is to figure out what it was that the perfect parent would do for their children and do it for ourselves. And all of us have had this to some degree from our parents. All of our parents were imperfect. They'd be the first to admit it. But I don't know you well enough to be sure about the details of this. But I venture to suggest that none of you think your parents are totally evil. Like, I mean, my children might think that I am at times. Um, but they'll probably be able to point to things about me that weren't as bad as they could have been. And even people who have... Um, it's, it, it, there are situations in which people have completely absent parents who completely abandoned them. And those situations are tragic. Uh, but, but notwithstanding that, most people can point to features of their upbringing which were good and features that were, you know, not so great. And they want to work on the effects of that. So we're recognizing and seeking to benefit from the central insight that Character flows from the cultivation of habits, which in turn are created by the imposition of structures for life that may be removed once the desired character is firmly in place. This is central to the God-given pattern for childhood. It's how the spirit works in us to bring us to mature manhood, and it may help us greatly as we seek as adults to grow towards greater maturity in Christ. Let me highlight a couple of points just from that paragraph. Um, notice the connection character habits structures. And we've talked about this a little bit before. Um, you put timetable structures and behavioral structures and rules and so on in place in children's lives because you want them to habitually do certain things. And what you're hoping is that there'll come a time where you can take the rules away and they can become adults and they'll leave home, but they will still do something that corresponds to those structures. They might not get up at the same time that they got up in the morning when they were six or seven or 10 or 12 years old, but they will have had inculcated in them a habit of um, discipline and regularity in going to bed and getting up and going to work and doing all the, you know, keeping the house clean and that kind of thing. And the point is that once the character is in place, it's flexibly deployable. A person who is, has, had it ground into him that he keeps his bedroom tidy, is likely to keep his car tidy and his desk tidy at work and his house tidy from when he has one and his life basically in order and all kinds of other things because character features permeate each other and discipline in one area of life tends to be reflected in discipline in another area of life, which is why you should be very suspicious of uh, politicians who say that my private life doesn't make any difference to my ability to do my job. Yes, it does truthfulness and integrity are character traits that produce effects in private and in public. And, you, and there's no such thing as public integrity and private integrity, which can be sort of detached from each other. There's just integrity. And so you can't, if you can't trust a man because, well, if a man can't keep his marriage vows, then why would he keep his vows to defend the Constitution? Point proved, right? So, uh, notice also, I wanted to highlight it is how the spirit works to bring us to mature manhood. We're not talking about self-improvement here. 
um, there is a vast literature of self-improvement, uh, which is mostly secular in its presentation. Uh, I actually think that what's going on is it is the unacknowledged rediscovery of things that our culture has learned from the church or has just picked up by God's grace, which he distributes commonly even to people who uh, don't believe in Christ. Uh, our culture bears the marks of both common grace, that is, and some of you theologically-minded folks, uh, you, you know that the phrase common grace refers to kindness that God shows even to those who don't believe in Christ, just in creation. He causes his reign to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives to all men life and breath and everything else. That's common grace. Some theologians also speak of what's called middle grace, which is kind of halfway between common grace that everybody gets and special grace, which only those who are in Christ receive. Middle grace is somewhere in the middle. Now, how might that arise? Well, what could God do apart from blessing his church in Christ with every spiritual blessing in him and giving rain and food and productivity and a sense of it's a good idea to get up in the morning and work and so on to people who don't believe in him. What else could he do? What he actually does historically is to cause people who don't believe in him to benefit from his special grace given to the church. So it's different from God causing rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's common grace. What has happened historically is that whole structures of society, institutions of government and education and uh, the way that families are operated and so on, they learn from the church, then they stop believing in Jesus, but they still carry on doing some of the things they used to do when they did believe in Jesus, which means they work better than they otherwise would. And so our entire legal system is uh, the fruit of middle grace. Um, the... Uh, the motto of the university that Nicole and I met at is Dominus Illuminatio Mea. God is my enlightenment. Of course, the, the psalm continues, and my salvation. I don't know whether the university has ever acknowledged that. Um, but it reflects the fact that back in the day, people thought that wisdom and knowledge were gifts of God, and indeed they are. And so much of what's good that's come out of our educational institutions is the fruit of God's middle grace. Anyway, so um, uh, all of these things have found their way into self-help literature. I'm not particularly interested in encouraging you to go and read self-help literature. There are actually some good books about various things. And uh, if you are encouraged to read them, you probably should do so. I'm not, I might do at some point, show, share with you some things I've found helpful. But my goal is to try and give us a biblical framework that explains what's good about that stuff. And there may come a point where it's helpful just to shortcut to some of that and to, to share with you some insights from it. Okay, um, let me pause there and see if any, any questions at this stage or any comments before we jump into this numbered list of things. Yeah, John Henry. When it comes to secular and using Yes. Um, but in the exploration of natural law, what people 
are doing is they're discerning if they're they're discerning right, right. God's structures and patterns and mm -hmm. laws, God's laws revealed through nature. And yeah. So they're really on the way to God, they just don't realize that Jesus was on the way to God. <laughs> right. Um so, well, there's a couple of thoughts. So, so raising the subject of natural law um, invites the two questions that are tangled to, and interwoven in what you said. The first is is kind of what use is it, and how how might it be helpful? And then, second, more specifically, is it and does it lead us towards salvation in Christ? Are, are people finding their way towards God, but He's behind the curtain? Your illustration, and they've not yet sort of drawn it back. Um, let me, let me, um, it's actually a really helpful question, though it's not an easy one <laughs> to answer. Thank you. Um, let me just say a word or two about it. Uh, hands up if you've heard the phrase natural law. You heard the phrase? Okay. Did you define it, please? Yeah, I, I thought, I was, I was going to get you guys to do that. Um, who wants to have a go at defining natural law? Go on. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, that's a great idea. That'll teach you. <laughs> My understanding of natural law is it's Right, that's, that's very good. Yeah. Laws that arise from examining nature. That's a, that's a pretty good definition. Um, the, a, a, a tighter and bolder definition claiming more for natural law would be that natural law is a, a set of moral precepts that can be inferred by looking at nature or the creation. Hence, natural law. The claim is that by looking at the way the world works, we can figure out what's right and wrong morally. Hmm. Now, I, this is a is an interesting claim because um, it's wrong. Okay, I'll, I'll just tell you it's it's wrong, and I'll t I want to explain why. But I want to explain why it's got. A, a little hint of truth in it. Let me explain why it's wrong first. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19. Very good. Um, well, that's the go-to psalm to highlight the fact that in the created order, God's handiwork is evident. And there are many other, you know, the doctrine of creation itself implies that God has left his fingerprints on the way the world works. But, two things. First, yeah. Right. Excellent. So God made the world. This is all good. This is all beautiful. This is all wonderful. Parents pronounce it very good. And the heavens are telling the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork and so on. But you've already hinted at the first problem with this which is that the created order is full of sinful people now. And so the first problem with that a natural law theory has to overcome is the fact that people do all kinds of wicked and evil things, and those people are part of the creation as well. Why should you not infer that because the wicked seem to prosper sometimes, therefore wickedness is acceptable? Because after all, if it works, then... Right? And in more general terms, the things that happen in the creation itself are morally reprehensible in some instances. And if moral, if natural law is all you've 
got, then you've no way of telling righteousness from unrighteousness. There's no use saying, well, I'm going to appeal to the natural law to tell me, because the natural law has got things that, bad things that people do and good things that people do. How do you know the difference? That's the first problem. The second problem is, even if you're looking at stars and trees and rocks and mountains, that is to say, non-moral entities, entities that can't sin, you're looking at ants, for example, um, and, and you think, okay, I'm going to try and figure out the ways of righteousness by going to the ant, as the book of Proverbs says. Well, not only is are other people sinful, but we are sinful, and our sinfulness distorts what we see when we look at the world, even when we're looking at a bit that's good. So, Romans 1, um, I'll, I'll read, actually, rather than just quoting it, I'll give you a second to, to turn to it with me. Romans chapter 1 highlights the problem in general terms, from verse 18 onwards, So Paul explains, the, and this is a monumental statement at the start of um, probably historically the most epoch-making of all his letters. He explains why the wrath of God is being revealed against all um, people, verse 18. The wrath of God is, revealed, is being revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, what have they done wrong? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The unrighteous suppression of truth, or the truth, is the problem. Well, what truth is that? For what can be known about God is plain to them, that is all people, because God has shown it to them. So the truth that people are guilty of suppressing is God's self-revelation in the created order. And we suppress that truth. How so? Well, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever seen the since the creation of the world. Psalm 119, the heavens declare the glory of God in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. What are they without excuse for? What have they done that's so bad? For though they knew God, quote-unquote, in the sense that the human mind and the human eye and the human ear has the capacity to perceive in the created order that it is made by an omnipotent creator and that we ought to honor him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, in, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So instead of looking at the created order and seeing the goodness and wonder of God and inferring moral truth from it, what actually happens is that we become futile in our thinking and our hearts are darkened. And the end result of that is, verse 22, claiming to be wise, and we all know there are some extremely wise um, people who don't believe in Jesus around, they became fools, echoes of the Proverbs use of that word. And what did they do? The climax of this problem, in verse 23, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, Instead of honoring God and giving glory to him, they looked at the world and their minds were corrupted and twisted and distorted. And all of us have this tendency. And instead of honoring the creator who made these things, we honor these things themselves. So in the most general sense, that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is replacing the glory of the creator with the created world. And if you think about that in, the, in a somewhat abstract way, you can see every, every form of secularism, Every, every other religion 
is the replacement of the true God with some substitute. In the ancient world, it was actual images, physical carved images, the kind of thing that Isaiah mocks when a guy chops a tree down and uses half of it to cook a fire, make a fire to cook his dinner, and the other half he, he nails down and says, this is my God, and he bows down to it, and then he has to hold it down so it won't fall over. And that's, but that, we, we do that with ideas and principles and uh, abstract frameworks of thought, as well as with um, explicitly religious ideologies. So here's the problem with natural law. God has revealed all of the glory of himself and of truth and goodness and wisdom and beauty in the world. And if you had perfect eyes and a sinless mind and heart, you could perceive God in it. But firstly, it's twisted. And secondly, we're twisted. So now what are you going to do? You read these things off the created order, and some of them are right and some of them are wrong, and you're misreading some of them. And here's a crucial thing. You don't know which. You don't know which is which. So even if it were the case that some of the things that you're discerning in the created order and thinking that looks good, even if you were right about some of those things, you can't reliably distinguish those things from the things that we're wrong about. So that's a problem with natural law. Right, now, what's good about natural law? Well, two things. First, we want to insist that the created order is actually good as unfallen, right? Human beings make a mess of things. But if, if you abstract that away... The world is good still. Psalm 19 is still written after the fall. That's the first thing. And that's important because you, you, wanna, you want to find a way of defending the claim that God's ways work and other ways fail. God is still the creator. And the world is still supposed to work in a certain way, irrespective of our opinion. And this is why all those books can be written. And this is why I like the thousand blind monkeys throwing darts randomly. If you put a thousand people in the world and they all behave randomly, one of them might randomly live a life which corresponds in some practical ways to the kind of life that King Solomon describes in the book of Proverbs. And he's probably going to do better than the rest of them. And so if they all write books, his will be the one that people notice, actually, this is quite good. <laughs> yeah? Um, the other thing that we want to defend is the claim, and this is, this is where I want to give, like, half a cheer to natural law. Calvin, um, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, in the first, big, first book, oh, you haven't read it with me. No, wrong class. Looking around for a Bible and theology student. I can't find one. Um, he highlights that, he goes through this whole logic of, how natural revelation, as he calls it, is unable to bring us to the truth of knowing God as Redeemer. Um, but then he says, God has given us another word, referring to the scriptures, not as an alternative. Calvin views the scriptures as a, a lens through which we should be viewing everything else. Just think about that for a second. It's not we close our eyes to the created world and we just go and inhabit a vacuum somewhere and we just have the Bible. 
No, he, Calvin highlights that the Lord wants us to live in the world, which means we have to think about the world and understand the world and work in the world and have relationships with things in the world and do things in the world. And all of that entails understanding the world. And so partaking of natural revelation. We, that, that's unavoidable to engage with real stuff. The scriptures are the lens or the window through which we should view those things. So it's not the case that the scriptures merely give us an alternative source of revelation. They give us an additional source of revelation which shows us how to interpret the world. So that's the point at which I want to come back to um, Cal Newport, Daniel Kahneman, um, Richard Thaler, half a dozen other people who've written books which are really insightful books about certain aspects of how the world works. Uh, Edwin Friedman. Yeah? None of these people are believers in Jesus. No, actually, Cal Newport might be. I think he's Roman Catholic. Um, but all of them have either got a bit of middle grace or they're random dart-throwing monkeys who've hit the bullseye. And the scriptures are a window through which we can view it. Now, that, what that means is inevitably when you're thinking about life, you're thinking about how to do your job, you don't just open the Bible at page one and think, right, now how do I do property management? In the beginning, God created the heavens and nothing about property management here. Um, let me just turn over, you know. Now, Jacob was the father of nothing about you know, that's not how you do it. What you actually do is you, you get to work, and the scriptures inform your way of life. Now, that's actually um, how you might come up with a list of these five things that we'll need to do. You, you start to notice, actually, um, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you, it was um, James Clear and his book, Atomic Habits, that first highlighted to me personally the value of keeping track of your progress if you're trying to deal with a particular habit that you're trying to get rid of. And then you start to think about it, and you realize, yeah, I should have, I should have spotted that. I should have crystallized the value of tracking your progress in, um, let's say, your daily Bible reading. But I hadn't. I'd been tracking my daily Bible reading progress for ages. I mean, you keep a little diary, right? Otherwise, you don't know where you've got to. Even if it's just like a post-it note in there. You, we all do that. And, and yet what James Clear has done is to bring up a bunch of psychological research which shows why it's actually quite motivating and encouraging to track your progress in relation to a habit you're trying to follow or get rid of. So I'm not at all embarrassed about um, gaining insights from the created order, including the works of people who have written, who aren't Christians. I just want to make sure always we're viewing it through this lens. Does that, is that making sense? So it's, it's a really, really good, and it's something I was thinking I probably should talk about at some point. So thank you for raising it. Yeah. Now, does that raise any more questions for people? Todd, you were looking at one point. You, tell me, your where are you on the natural law skepticism scale? Are you more or less where I, I am? Natural law is a sin, so I, I, Who taught you that? Was that me? Jim Jordan. Oh, yeah, of course he did. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's a live question. Yeah, some, so some Reformed folks are wanting to push back a little bit. And I think I, the weird thing is, as soon as I sit down with one of them, and I had a long conversation with one guy who's written on this subject, and I remember I got to the end, I thought, yeah, we don't actually disagree. What is it? We're coming at it from different directions. Um, and so I'm, what I'm expressing is, okay, basically sceptical, but I'll give you this much. He's wanting to come at it from, you're basically positive, but we need these, da- these caveats in place. And by the time he's fleshed out his caveats and I've fleshed out my scepticism, we're basically in the same place, I think. Um, so I, I, it, I was kind of encouraged by that, and it made me think that it's more politics than theology that's... All right, yeah, Mr. Bennett. The author isn't going to say, I'm writing this book from the perspective of natural law. I mean, nowadays, people wouldn't use that. No, no. They might have done, yes. So it's really anybody that has anything to say about what they have learned. Right, right. They're not looking at the world through the word. They're just observing what they think they see when they write about it. Right, your grandmother's wisdom, you know? If she wasn't... I mean, my, my grandma was not, well, one of my grandmas wasn't a believer. Um, a stitch in time saves nine. Well, that's just true. Now, how do, the book of Proverbs puts that differently in all kinds of other ways, and the rest of Scripture puts that differently. But that's the encoding of, I think, really middle grace that's then disseminated through the culture. Now, if we get so clueless and so unbiblical that we can start benefiting from that, First, I wouldn't be surprised. Second, we probably should try and benefit from it. What I want to emphasize here, though, is I'm trying to approach it from a different direction. I want to show you how this emerges, actually, from a self-aware consideration of the biblical material. Because I I don't want our focus to be on extra-biblical material, even if that's helpful. Yeah. So, let me... um, Suggest we just we press on, um, and if you can remember where we are, uh, what I've got now is I've distilled what I think are five, I hope they're helpful, aspects of the task that we have. Let's suppose I wanted to say, I want to go back spiritually in my life to the age of 12 and see if I can grow my feet from size 4 to something approaching what they ought to be, size 10 or 11 or whatever, yeah? Um, i my spiritual growth is stunted, and I want to. I've been banging my head against a brick wall, trying harder, getting frustrated, despairing, giving up, not seeing much progress for a few years. Well, let me try this five things. Five things that our parents normally would have done for us, but we should do for ourselves. First, accurate self diagnosis. We do not have the luxury of relying on parents to diagnose our shortcomings. We must do the job ourselves. We must maybe help by sermons, teaching, books, study, the encouragement and rebuke of friends, and so on. But in the end, we must take personal responsibility for clearly identifying those aspects of our life and character that we wish, by God's grace, to change. And let me tell you that that, uh, after you've been a pastor a while, you start to notice patterns. And one of the patterns you notice is that people who really grow in their faith as believers often include a large proportion of folks who come to you and say, could you help me with X? And it's because they've spotted something about themselves. Sometimes people will join a new church and 
the sudden acquaintance with some new role models will call their attention to, wow, that, that lady is just, she does whatever it is so wonderfully. And I'd never even, I'd never even realized that was a thing. Um, those kids, and this, this often happens with parents of young children who uh, have had little experience of um, uh, disciplining children and of trying to shepherd them in a sensible way. And, and, and you know, might, be, might be really enthusiastic and loving and love to their kids deeply, but basically they've bought into the world's lie that, that while two-year-olds are just rowdy and ram, run around and you can't do anything, terrible twos. Do you have that phrase in America? We, the terrible twos. And it's like a tacit admission of defeat. Well, you know, it's just the terrible twos. And then you go to a church someplace and then and you, where you're all the, the, two, the terrible twos all lined up in a row, all looking nice and neat and smiling and playing happily with each other, not tearing each other's hair out by the roots. And you think, oh. And then you, so you go to the pastor or you go to one of your friends or somebody and you say, um, can, you, can you help? We've, we've got like a two-year-old and he's all over the place and he's making... He doesn't seem to want to sit still for more than 30 seconds. And I don't want to give up on him. I want to help him. What, what do you do with your kid to make him sit still? Now, how asking those kinds of questions indicates accurate self-diagnosis. Now, it's not always that they ask me. People sometimes ask each other, which is why I don't have like a hotline to all of your spiritual lives. That's fine. I don't need that. But um, we need to be honest with ourselves. Um, there's a way of listening to a sermon or listening to that little bit before the invitation to confess our sins, which is really attentive and searching for the, uh, what is it in here that applies to me? There's bound to be something. And there's a way of listening to sermons critically, and sometimes that's a good idea. But there's a way of listening to and engaging with teaching and encouragement in a way that I'm trying to learn. Then second, clear goals. Having defined the problem, we must define the solution. Our parents normally, sorry, not normally, when we were children, our mum and dad presumably had a vision for our ability to read at some point, which is why they bothered to teach us. We'd like you to be able to read. They did that. Well, we can't rely on them to do that. If we've diagnosed the problem, we need to figure out where we'd like to get to. What would Christ-like maturity look like in this particular area of life? Do we just accept that two-year-olds are terrible? Right? Do we just accept that 20-somethings are lazy? Um, do we just accept that 40-somethings drink too much? Do we, is that just like we just live with that? Or do we think, no, no, hold on a second. Um, we shouldn't accept those things. What would be a biblical attitude to work, relationships, drink, driving, everything else? And again, there are many resources that may be helpful, but we've got to take responsibility ourselves, ultimately. Number three, well-defined structures. And as I've thought about it and been talking with a number of people in recent months, I think this is the hardest part. So you figured out where you are, uh, I, I struggle with this um, tense relationship with my two teenage sons. And whenever I want to kind of challenge them about something, uh, I notice a bit of resentment and I get angry and I blow a fuse and I, I just feel like the relationship's getting worse. Yeah? And I want it to be like, 
and you, you can easily imagine what you'd like your relationship to be like. So you've diagnosed where you are, where you'd like to get to. Now what do you do? Having defined the trajectory along which we wish to grow, we must put in place structures designed to inculcate new habits which will, over time and by God's grace, forge in us the desired character. I honestly, I think that's the most difficult thing of all. That, that is a large part of what pastoral work is. Um, there's a lot of effort that goes into um, diagnosis sometimes, and often the diagnosis is, gets tangled up with all lots of issues come together. People rarely come with one issue they want to talk about. But even to the extent that they do, here you are with your terrible two-year-old. He is terrible. You don't want him to be terrible. And so you can see you want to, you're here, you want to get to here. Now, what do you... What structures are you going to put in place for him? And you can think of all kinds of things. So what would you do for yourself if you have a more complex adult pathology? Tracking your progress, number four. A loving parent watches their child's development, attentively monitoring their habits and prayerfully awaiting the emergence of the desired character. That's actually one of the really nice things about being a parent. Um, when you start to see your kids doing naturally things that are the outcome of um, habits that have grown out of the disciplines you... Put. The example, I was speaking about some of this stuff at Nacogdoches on Sunday and oh, Saturday, and the, the example I gave is, how many of you ever learned a musical instrument when you were a kid? So, like, about, you know, probably half, three quarters of us. Um, one of the really nice things as a parent is, you know, you've paid for piano lessons, or I taught my kids piano myself, but, um, for, <laughs> for what it's worth. You know, anyway, they're, they're okay at it. Anyway, Ben's really good. Ben, and what's really interesting is Ben now loves to play piano. Um, and Ben gives Abby piano lessons, <laughs> which is really fun for us to watch. Um, uh, but it's really, it's just really nice because what's happened is, you know, he's done, we, there were times when we had to, you know, have you done any piano practice? 20 minutes a day. Have you done any scales? Yada, yada, yada. And now it's the habits have forged the character of a young man who loves music, who loves a piano. And he's really much better than me. Uh, I don't know how he got, I didn't teach him all the stuff he can now do. And isn't that great when you see, but now you th- see that in, um, uh, in relation to godliness of, character um we want you know, th- little tiny things again i've used this example before i can't remember whether here or elsewhere you know the the young men who hold the door of the car open for their sisters or you know you're walking into a coffee shop or something and there's a young lady coming the other way and you, you don't kind of barge through and push her out the way you know you step aside after you and that that's almost like a, a habit isn't it um I can't not stand up when a lady walks into a room because I'm English. Sorry, it's just a thing in part of England I grew up. I think it's probably a thing around parts of Texas as well. But the point of those things is not, you know, exercise for your leg muscles. It's to inculcate uh, an instinctive kind of respect at the level of character for people, particularly ladies in that context. Now you want to watch that. If you're trying to develop a particular spiritual discipline or aspect of the fruit of the spirit or whatever it is, 
Um, well, be honest with yourself and see how you're getting on. Find a way of seeing whether you're getting worse or better or whatever it is. And then finally, uh, number five, absolute commitment to the task. A child who lacks willpower may still grow in maturity if he has diligent parents to kick him in the appropriate place regularly. And kids do this. All kids go through stubborn phases and they would not grow spiritually or maturity at all unless their parents ground it out of them you've done this with schoolwork. some of you have homeschooled your kids believe it or not i expect the four fine young men on that table there were days when you didn't really want to do your schoolwork, and your mum made you really never Aaron capone yeah all right well i'll ask your mum about that um but when you get you can see this very easily when a young man goes to college or a young lady goes to college and suddenly there are either no sanctions or very different delayed sanctions for not working. And what are you going to do on Monday morning? Nobody's going to beat you up out of bed because you're not down at the breakfast table. So, and this then propagates across all of our lives. Um, an adult must provide the necessary structures for growth himself or herself. Anything less than 100% commitment is all but certain to end in failure. One of the most painful pastoral lessons that I never learned at seminary. Nobody ever taught me this at seminary. And I don't blame my seminary professors. I blame myself. I should have, it should have been obvious. Repentance is unbelievably difficult. Looking at, yeah, um, is very hard. And one of the things I've done, which is really a foolish waste of time over the years, is try to cajole people into repentance who didn't really want to. Waste of time. You can pray for people, and you can try and encourage them to see the mess that they're in and headed towards and the fruitfulness of a life that's repentant from whatever it is that you think they're stuck in. But in, in the end... If they don't want to change, then giving them advice and help to change will do nothing. Uh, insight and uh, advice does not help somebody to change if they don't want to. What actually needs to be created is the desire to, to change. Um, and I, it took me a lot longer to realize that uh, in the early years of my pastoral ministry than it should have done. So... I've tried to crystallize all that in a little diagram. <laughs> I thought of getting, you know those screen beans? You remember the old Microsoft um, Office little black and white figures where there'd be a happy one like this, and then one that looked like that. And I thought of putting those in, but I thought that would just trivialize this really quite. You think that was the right decision? Yeah, Nicole thinks it was the right decision. Um, I, where we're starting with where we are, accurate self-diagnosis, what we need there, and then structures, habits, which will form character, and tracking our progress towards the clear goals that we have articulated. That's, uh, some people like thinking with diagrams, and that helps them, so I thought I'd throw that in there. So let me um, pause then. Now, any questions and comments and so on and so forth about that? Yeah, Uriah. We've got one from the Zoomers. Very good. Great. I'm sure we can all think of examples of friends, siblings, for whom the story of disappointments and failure. Uh, what sorts of confidence do you hold out to people in these structures? When, for example, spankings don't seem to be 
Asking for a friend. Asking for a friend. Or All right, okay, okay. So, um, uh, spanking a child is not helping. Praying first thing in the morning, doing nothing about the season of dryness. Okay, and, and in general, um, uh, what if the structures don't work is what is... Okay, great question. Um, so, first up, I'd say, um, sometimes you just need to keep going. Um and especially with things like stubborn two-year-olds. Like, how long do you think it was going to take? Um, but that said, sometimes um, there may be undiagnosed or unarticulated problems. So here's an example. Uh, with spanking children, there's a great idea. Um, if it's done right. But let me tell you, you cannot bludgeon Christ-likeness into a child via its backside. Like, it's not working. Well, let's just do it twice as hard. <laughs> the thrashings will continue until morale improves, you know. Um, <laughs> it's, you, you can't, in other words, they, they, sometimes they do these experiments. I mean, people have done, literally, I mean, this is, this is why you can't trust psychology generally as a discipline, right? People have done experiments trying to assess the effect of physical, corporal punishment in relation to behavioural outcomes in children. And they find, on average, it makes no difference or it makes things worse. Well, of course it makes no difference or it makes things worse, because it's not supposed to just work on its own. What do you do with a child? Well, first it's your child. Um, you catch them doing something, and depending on how old they are, you have to explain to them that that's not acceptable. And then why it's not acceptable... Um, this is not how a believer ought to live. Now, I'm going to smack you because I want you to remember that that's a bad thing to do. Okay? Right, now, come here. Let's have a hug. Let's pray. Now, do you understand that Jesus loves you and I love you? And I don't, I hate doing this. I wish we could stop doing this. But because I love you, we need to carry on. We, I need to be disciplined about doing this. Because you need to learn that you don't throw your carrots all over the floor just because you don't like carrots. Mummy gave you carrots. Now, come on. Come and eat your carrots. Right, now that's very different to just smack, isn't it? And that's, how you do that is going to vary depending on how old the child is and who the child is and what the issue is. So there's, there are complexities there. Similarly, spiritual dryness. I mean, that's, there's a slippery diagnosis if ever there was one. Um, if, if anybody out there or anybody in here feels spiritually dry, please come and see Pastor Neil or me. Because very often what's actually happening is a misplaced set of expectations that come from a particular kind of set of experiences in the past. I went to a, um, a charismatic church for about five years as a young adult. And it left me with lots of good things, actually. Um, the vicar of that church preached the sermon at our wedding. Delightful man, David McInnes. Really godly man. But it left me with a false set of expectations about what um, really vibrant spiritual life would entail. And there are expectations that my own life did not meet. I, I was, I'd never spoken tongues. 
and I never felt comfortable um, being so expressive in worship as some of my charismatic friends did. And so I felt for a long time there's something wrong with my spiritual life because I don't feel a certain way. Well, what the problem there is I'm, I've got a false set of expectations. So there's a couple of examples where sometimes, sometimes we're doing things wrong and we could get advice and, you know, here's how I'm trying to fight pornography and it's not working. Well, okay, let's think of something else. Here's how I'm trying to discipline my kid and it's not working. Let's talk about something else. Here's, here's my feelings about my spiritual life and I don't feel right. Well, stuff your feelings. Let's, let's talk about what the Bible says about what vibrant Christian life is. And it might, yeah, all of these things um, are susceptible to looking more closely at diagnosis, goals, structures. Yeah. So that is a great question. Um, is, is there a comeback? Yeah. There's another question. Fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, what would you recommend Yeah. So what if self-diagnosis is part of the problem? Well, uh, if you're married, um, start by asking your wife or husband what they think you could um, grow, area you could grow in. Um, we, Nicole and I had a, we, we asked the, the young, the, not young marriage, well, the, the couples who are at the, the um, parenting discussions to do this. Uh, husbands to ask their wives and then actually the other way around as well ask is there anything I could do that would really that you think because you might be wrong that you think would really improve the culture of our home and it prompted some really I got lots of emails afterwards saying we had some great discussions now you can say similar things so if you're married that's one place to go if you're not talk to somebody Um, uh, Pastor Neil be happy to hear from you Um, I I'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, fellowship group leader, um, friend. Um, no, and why not do this? Why, why not? Why not just call Pastor Neil or me or or your dad or one of the other elders once a year? Say, hey, um, uh, Elder Capone, um, are you free for lunch sometime? I'd love to just come over and hang out with you and just uh, get your advice about um, how my life is going and and invite you to ask me any difficult questions you want to ask. I actually did that with um, Pastor Booth, where I've been um, this this last weekend. When I moved to Fort Worth, I realized that apart from Pastor Neil, I didn't really have any um, close confident confidants who lived close to me. And so I asked Pastor Neil if he wouldn't mind, um, as when we got to see each other, sorry, Pastor Booth, if he wouldn't mind, as when we got to see each other, we could sit down occasionally, just ask me some hard questions about my own life and conduct and godliness. You know, are you tithing? Um, how's your relationship with your wife? Uh, do you have any relationships with other women that I need to know about? Et cetera, et cetera, those sorts of questions. So proactively seeking out pastoral counsel like that is a great idea. It doesn't have to be a pastor, but it can be. And that's what we're here for. We're shepherds. And you guys are sheep, so. <laughs> the business of shepherds is sheep. Yeah. So that's, that's, some, that's, that's a really great question. Um, any other things on the, um, on the wires? Thank you to those of you who asked that. Um, okay. 
So what I've got to, to just sh share with you in the remaining time we've got, um, I want to introduce the idea of freedom and connect it with what we've been talking about. I want to just make a passing reference to Mark 10, 13 to 15, which, I mean, I, I don't think we need, we'll look at it, we won't have time, but you know what it says. People were bringing children to Jesus, and the disciples rebuked them, and Jesus said, what are you doing? Let the little children come to me, because anyone who won't receive a, because the kingdom belongs to such as these, anyone who won't receive the kingdom like a child will never enter it. And scholars debate what it is about coming to Jesus like a child, or receiving the kingdom like a child, which is so virtuous and, and positive. And I think teachability, humility, all the, all the usual suspects are probably part of the picture, because children are complex beings, and it's not just child equals X. To be a child means to have a whole range, a complex of demeanors, but one of the things that a, a child has is a willingness to submit to structure. At least a, a child that's going anywhere. Um, liturgy ingrains structure in us. You know, we all have to kneel unless you knees are really dodgy. And then we all have to stand and then we all sing the same hymn and we all listen to the same sermon. The structure of our worship imposes structures upon us. So in, in these and lots of other ways, um, I think childlikeness probably includes that willingness to be submissive to the structures that will form us. And th so that's enough on that. Um, if we have time, we'll look at some of these proverbs. And as we look at those, what we'll notice is that all five of those numbered points will crop up here and there within them. You're, in one sense, that's that's the heart of tonight, and then may, maybe we'll defer it till next week and actually dig into it a bit more. Because what you find in there is, in the book of Proverbs, all the ingredients for um, self-diagnosis, clear goals, well-defined structures, tracking our progress, absolute commitment, they're all in there, all jumbled up. Which is one of the reasons why I think, going back to your point, John Henry, that this is really about um, scriptural wisdom expressed in terms that are perhaps more familiar in other literature. Yeah. But let me talk, I, I want to talk about freedom briefly, because what I want to show you is this... Um, these changes in our lives that I want to invite you to embrace, which will involve, for some of us, restrictions on our current behavior, or requiring ourselves to do things that we're not doing. That is to say, taking away our freedoms. They actually give freedom. And I want to explain as much as I can why that is. So, I'd like you first, if I could ask you, can somebody please define what freedom is? We want to have a crack at defining freedom. Anybody on Zoom wants to scribble anything in the comments box and Uriah can read it out? 
I'm just have a crack at defining freedom. I want multiple definitions. Is that a hand up? Yeah, go on. Being enslaved to Christ. Oh, you're so godly. Go to the top of the class, Uriah. That's great. Yeah. But how do... God, give me some more definitions. If you're free... You're not hindered in the pursuit of doing something. Right. Excellent. You're not hindered in the pursuit of doing something. Very good. You can do whatever you want to do. Not hindered. Do whatever you want. Any other... Yeah, John Henry. Your desires are not controlled by anything outside of you. Um, Jonathan Edwards would have words with you about that, but it would get somewhat technical, and you'd end up agreeing with him. But, uh, but yeah, <laughs> most people do when they when Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards is the kind of guy. If if he needs to write one sentence that takes two pages, so be it. You know that's yeah. Anyway, um, okay, not hindered, not constrained by anything. Now. Um, One of the most prominent contexts in which the, the, the idea of freedom arises, and this is for understandable reasons, is in political conversations. You've, we're all familiar with this. Um, the reason that we're familiar with this is because the biggest game in town is politics. Right? And political power exercises the greatest and in some cases, the most intrusive constraints upon our behavior. Think of all the things that a person could do. Now think of what stops you doing most of them. And so there is a tendency to think of freedom in this kind of way. It's to do with constraint or lack of constraint and particularly lack of constraint from outside, and particularly lack of constraint from outside in the form of governmental constraint. Now, here's the problem with that. Um, would you describe somebody as free if they ate cockroaches for breakfast every day? Yeah, they went out into the garden, or they went into the, into the cellar or the garage and, and, and thought, I'm going to eat cockroaches. You know, deranged behavior. Yeah, I don't want the watermelon. Yeah. Would you describe, another example, would you describe somebody as free who lived in a nice house, uh, they've got inherited wealth, and every day they just lay in bed eating popcorn and watching movies on the screen projected onto the wall in their bedroom. Would you describe such a person as free? But if they're doing that voluntarily, you're shaking your head, Uriah. Why not? Well, because that last analogy that you used is somehow going to make it out. Yeah. The sluggard. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it to his mouth. He dies of starvation. But this man isn't dying of starvation. He's got enough energy to bring the Cheetos up to his mouth. Is such a person free? He's not constrained by anybody outside him. He has no lack of money. There's something morally wrong with it, but why? 
ought to be doing something productive. So he's free to be slothful. Yeah, free to be slothful. He ought, he ought to be doing something productive. Yeah, but he's got his stocks and shares and his income bonds and everything else. And it's like any food he wants, he can just call on Amazon and a drone brings it to him and he can in through the window. Yeah, we describe him as enslaved to something. Yeah, Jack, go ahead. I was going to say, is it possible to have two different, like, there's a political standard in the sense that government is not restraining him from doing things, and no other person is. But in a larger sense, he is, uh, in a more holistic sense, enslaved to his own desires and to sin, like God said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very good. Right, between you, you've, you've nailed it, I think. In effect, what's happened with our discussions of freedom is that we have conflated multiple different ideas and allowed one to completely swallow up the others. Freedom from external constraint and particularly government looms so large in our consciousness that we forget that it's possible for somebody to be um, not free in some other sense because of their foolishness or because of their sinfulness or because of their lack of imagination or because of something else that's internal to them. So, we, in other words, we can't define freedom as lack of constraint. F- f- lack of constraint is one thing that's necessary to freedom. But there's something else that's necessary to freedom if we're not going to say that the guy who's lying in his bed watching movies and eating Cheetos is free. And I, I was trying to think, what's the best way of understanding it? I think something like this. Um, wisely, having the capacity wisely to enjoy all the goodness of God's world, something like that. If somebody has the capacity to wisely enjoy all the goodness of God's world. Well, they're firstly, they're not going to be eating cockroaches for breakfast, right? Because that's like, that's not what cockroaches are for. Cockroaches are for exterminating and treading on. That's not enjoying the goodness of God's world to eat cockroaches for breakfast. Eating dirt, isn't that? Eating Cheetos on your bed all day watching movies isn't enjoying all the goodness of God's world as well either. In the first, the cockroaches, you're constrained by terrible taste in breakfast cereal. In the second sense, you're constrained by something between foolishness and sinfulness. Can you see? And we, we need to recover the idea that that is a form of enslavement. It's, you're not free to the extent that you can't um, direct yourself towards what is fruitful and good and beautiful and wise. A free person would not be constrained externally from doing what's good and wise and not be constrained internally from doing what's good and wise. Which means that they would be constrained internally from doing things that are foolish and destructive. In other words, freedom, in the truest and fullest sense, requires self-constraint. 
Because otherwise, it's just random action, including destructive action, and the caricatures of eating cockroaches and watching movies and so on and so forth are just egregious examples of that. But you can imagine all the other dumb things people might do in the name of freedom, when all they're thinking about is no external constraint. In fact, they're being driven by foolishness and ungodliness. Now, is this making sense? Now, Ken Myers, great person to read and listen to on this stuff. If you can, the Mars Hill podcast, um, is, it, is it a podcast? The Mars Hill Audio I think it's available as a podcast. It's a subscription service. But he's talked about this a lot and written about it. Um, I came across it, back in this political context again, in a letter from John Adams to the Massachusetts militia on 11th of October, 1798. Have you read this? Do you kids read this? I never read this stuff when I did history lessons at school. It was so boring. Oh, I wasn't paying attention. But we never did this. Um, and this is just remarkable because it brings together um, the political aspect of what freedom is with the, the need for internal self-restraint. So let me read the, the letter to you. It's three paragraphs. Um, I'll tell you where they're going. The first paragraph says, um, uh, England will be a great... Oh, England... America <laughs> America will be a great place to live if we behave well. Second paragraph says it will be a terrible place to, behave, to live if we behave badly. Reason is, thirdly, third paragraph, because no government can constrain bad people. Right. So, first, while our country remains untainted with the principles and manners which are now producing desolation in so many parts of the world, while she continues sincere and incapable of insidious and impious policy, we shall have the strongest reason to rejoice in the local destination assigned us by Providence. In other words, while the people of America, 1798, remember, remain good people, thank God that we get to live here. And what a wonderful place to live. Second paragraph, but should the people of America once become capable of that deep simulation toward one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language, this is so prescient, which assumes the language of justice and moderation while it is practicing iniquity and extravagance and displays in the most captivating manner the charming pictures of candor, frankness and sincerity while it is rioting in rapine and insolence, this country will be the most miserable habitation in the world. In other words, you can see what he's saying. If we pretend to be just when we're being iniquitous, if we pretend to be candid and frank and sincere when in fact we're being riotous and insolent, this is going to be a miserable place to live. So why not? Why can't you just have laws and legal structures that make people behave well, third paragraph. Because we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Two famous sentences now. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Of course, he means Christian. That was the only religion in town back in the 18th century. 
Our constitution was made for a Christian people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Think about your, and I guess now our, (laughs) political history. The whole ambition of America was to reduce to an absolute minimum the intrusions from external governmental forces. So so you're, you're free in relation to external constraint from the federal government. Well, why on earth is going to constrain people? Well, Jesus, obviously. Like, and if that can be made to work, this country will be the most wonderful place to live. But if we ever try to pull off like a constitution like that, whilst we, the, the, the citizenry were unrighteous and ungodly or hypocritical, now, this would be a disaster. Because there's no power on earth that can constrain, well, this constitution can constrain ungodly people. So you can, you can start to see, okay, why, why is this all relevant here? Well, remember what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to articulate how we can learn to constrain ourselves. Growing in maturity in Christ, which means growing in Christ-likeness, which means having Christian character, means having a the capacity to restrain our own behavior. That's what we're talking about. So that we desperately want to do certain things which are Christ-like and we desperately hate the thought of doing other things which are wicked and ungodly. We just, and we want character and temperament. That's what we're looking for. And the stakes are extremely high. And John Adams would say, this is how to save the country. It's how to save the nation. To start, not just here, but every, if everywhere, if what churches did... Imagine, I mean, there's still tens of percent of people in Christian churches in America. If churches learned to take seriously the task of self-discipling, self-government, then this whole kind of constitutional settlement thing would work or have a chance of working. But, but do we really want, like, more freedom when people are incapable of constraining themselves? That that that'd be a disaster. And I'm not now saying what we want is more restriction, because that'd be a disaster too. What we need is Christ-like self-government. Okay, we've gone three minutes over time. I think I'm going to um, reschedule Bible study so it finishes at uh, 7:18, then at 8:18, then it always finishes on time. Um, thank you to those of you on the Zoom who've stayed with us. Um, we're going to stick around for a few minutes if you want to talk, ask some more questions, but I'll conclude now so that you guys can go if you need to. Uh, we'll see if you want to talk some more. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who perfectly exemplified freedom because he was perfectly submissive to your will and to your ways. Would you please help us to Uh, think carefully about the ways in which we are not Christ-like and 
in something like these ways we've talked about tonight, attend to them so that we may grow more like him. We ask this for our own sake and for the sake of those we love and even we dare to pray without meaning to sound grandiose for the sake of this country in which you've placed us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.